Okay, we're going to start in the New Testament. If you want to be turning, first of all, to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. As I said, Adrian kind of really summed up what he shared earlier, uh, what I, I really feel the Lord's kind of laid on my heart. Uh, you know, sometimes it's good when we kind of break from that way we do things most of the time. You know, we don't want, we never want to get stuck in a rut. And, uh, you know, we are hugely blessed to be able to teach expositionally, verse by verse through scripture, and we're going to continue to do that. But sometimes I think the Lord has something specific to say at a season, uh, and that may need uh, a different study, different type of study. And I really feel that what we'll do for the next, certainly two weeks, is just, just break from the, the verse by verse studies. And for one of the working title this morning is, the title is A Warning to the Body. Next week, I want to come back with something else, uh, which will loosely term an exhortation to the body, uh, a word of encouragement and, and so on. But it's no secret that a number of people in the fellowship are struggling at the moment. Health issues, various mental problems and, uh, and so on, uh, various stresses and pressures that impact us. And, you know, we're, we're not unique, you know, in that sense. Everybody goes through these kind of things. But we have got a large number of individuals within the fellowship that are going through very difficult times for different reasons. And I wanted to just address this this morning. Um, the first thing we need to be very careful of is that we don't just blame the devil for everything. The devil gets a lot of credit for a lot of things, and sometimes it's nothing to do with the devil. You know, a New Zealand evangelist, Barry Smith, when we were younger, uh, I remember him talking. And, you know, he said that you know, a truck's driving along the road, a nail falls off the back of the truck, a car then goes over the nail. Who, whose fault was that? Just gravity and, you know, it's just, there's a bunch of things. You know, and I, I think I've shared this before. When I was younger, I used to play in bands when I was drumming. And I was playing, I played for a number of different Christian bands. And uh, I also played for some secular covers bands, uh, do functions and parties and so on. And, you know, if we were struggling getting equipment set up, if we were having problems, the Christian band would suddenly, we would stop, we'd go into a kind of huddle and we'd pray and we'd cast out the demons and we'd do all this kind of stuff. The secular band, we'd just go and get another lead. It kind of highlights the thing that sometimes we, we just blame the devil for everything, and actually it's not. And, and it may be that a number of the things that we're going through individually, it could just be time of the year, there's a lot of germs going around, colds, you know, bugs and other things, and it could be other factors. However, we need to also be mindful that there is always a spiritual component to our lives because we are spiritual beings. We are dwelling in a physical body for now. But, of course, we are spiritual, and we're spiritual creations in that sense. So... Um, <clears throat> First of all, um, let's just look at the, a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, which is kind of insightful in itself, what it tells us. It's verse 16 and 17, actually, the verses I want to look at. Paul's speaking of the, the communion. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, it says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And then Paul adds this and says, for we, being many, are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. Paul makes the point that we are one body as a group of believers. Now, in one sense, that's the whole church, the church you know, universal. But in another sense, it also applies to each local and individual congregation. And there's a number of ways we can we can see this um, through Scripture. If you just turn uh, to the next chapter, eleven twenty nine, it's a passage of Scripture we often use when we celebrate communion together. 
Verse 29, it says, For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, it's speaking of our attitude, uh, attitude of heart and mind when we celebrate communion. Uh, it says very clearly you know, in verse 28 that a man should examine himself. You know, and that's really the purpose of what I want to do here this morning, just to give us an opportunity to examine ourselves, because there is a consequence very clearly implied in verse 29. And notice that it's not discerning the Lord's body. You know, somebody who's eating and drinking, somebody celebrating communion, being part of the body of Christ, who is doing so in a state of sin, or unconfessed sin, being unrepentant, or whatever, is a circumstance, but unworthily is the title that, that we've given here in the, in the, in the text. We're told, eats and drinks damnation to himself. And notice, not discerning the Lord's body. What is the Lord's body? It's you and I. Not understanding that we are part of a greater whole than ourselves. You know, it, it's not just us. Turn, if you will, to back to the Old Testament, to Leviticus, chapter 19. And uh, we're going to look at the first two verses of that chapter. And this is something that's reiterated a number of times through the Torah that God says to the children of Israel. Okay, so verse 19 of Leviticus, chapter one and two, uh, verse 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, at the start of this year, uh, I share with you, I really felt the Lord just lay on my heart that the real theme for the year was holiness for us. Uh, and I said at the time, I didn't know quite what that meant, how that was going to play out and, and you know, uh, whatever. But, you know, there's just been this constant reminder that God is calling us to be holy. But just look at what we're told in this verse, what God is saying to Israel. And I believe the same applies to us. Peter makes it clear in the New Testament, this isn't just for them, it's for us too. He says, you shall be holy. It's a statement. You know, we have so many blessings being God's children. And we're told very clearly that part of the condition, in a sense, is that we must be holy. Now, we're given salvation. It doesn't cost us anything. But God says, but in return, you shall be holy. Not have a go at it, not try your best. You know, and of course, we, we recognize that this in itself is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we can just decide to do. You don't decide to be holy and suddenly you're there. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament uses the, the phrase sanctification, setting us apart for God. In fact, in Thessalonians, uh, I think it's 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 or 4, I think it is, that says that God's will... Is our sanctification. That's what God wants for us. And, you know, you can apply that to any situation, any circumstance. You know, why are we going through the troubles we are? Well, because God's will is that we're sanctified, that we're set apart. Or another way of putting it, God's will is that we become holy. You know, you can, you can apply it to any circumstance, any situation you're in. You know, you're, you're driving along, this using analogy again, you get a flat tire at the side of the road. Why did God allow that? Well, because God wants you to be holy. Can you show in that situation, circumstance, that you still trust God? You know, how many times have you been in situations where something's happened and it's frustrated you and yet suddenly out of that has come an opportunity to serve God, to show obedience to God, to witness to someone else by the way you respond or react? No, we, we are to be holy. And notice the, the next part. 
Because God says, for I. This is God himself. This is the, the creator of all things. For I, and God just reminds us who he is. He doesn't just say, for I, your God, am holy. He says, for I, the Lord. And you'll notice, again, you should have, uh, most translations have this, but it, the, the letters are capitals. So in the Hebrew, this is the, for the Jews, the unpronounceable name of God. It's referred to sometimes as the Tetragrammaton, or, you know, this is the, these four letters. Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, the, the Hebrew letters. I, the Lord, Jehovah. You know, this, this is the God who created all things, who sustains all things. This is the God that spoke to Moses on top of Sinai. This is the God that led the children of Israel across the, the Red Sea that was with Daniel in the lion's den that sustained and helped David through those years in the wilderness and so on and so on. This is the God. It says, for I, the Lord, your God. And God reminds us that he is not just who he is, he is the great I am. He was uh, there before the beginning began. God is outside of time. God sees the end from the beginning. He's totally outside of our Small way of thinking. God sees everything. He's the Lord. And he says, your God. Because that's also a, a statement that we need to understand, that, that we can have many things that we can call gods. And, and Israel continually, you read through books like Jeremiah, continually rebukes for putting other things in the place of God. And well, how we're guilty of that in today's culture. So many other things compete for our time and attention and become like God to us. You know, even if you were to sit down and just list the time you spent doing different things this week, and you allocated time to each of those things, how would God feature in your allocation of time? Have you spent more time on God this week than on anything else? I guess the answer to that is probably no for all of us. Now we'll argue, ah, but we have to work. And all those things are true, but you can still be putting God first and God can still be number one wherever you are, whatever circumstance. So again, we should be holy because this incredible God that we serve, the great I am, the Lord, our God is holy. God says he wants us to be like him. Okay, let's turn to few pages further on to the book of Joshua. And we're going to jump in at chapter 6, verse 15. So Joshua chapter 6, verse 15. So the scenario is that the background to this, that the children of Israel have left Egypt. They spent two years camped at Sinai. They're 38 years wandering. Of course, they could have gone into the promised land earlier. Joshua, Joshua and Caleb wanted a, to go in, and the other ten said, no, 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 there's giants there, there's problems, we can't overcome them, we won't get victory. And Joshua and Caleb said, well, God will be with us. But no, they spent 38 years wandering until that generation die out, and now they're ready to cross over. In fact, they've just crossed over the Jordan, and they're about to go and now take this incredible fortified city of Jericho. Interestingly, I've just been reading the new book by Bill Cooper on the authenticity of Joshua, and uh, he highlights a number of letters that were written uh, amongst the inhabitants of Canaan uh, to each other, saying, we are really scared, please help, send help to us. Interestingly, there's no letter from Jericho that's on any of the ancient um, documents that they found. 
which is interesting because Jericho was the first one to be taken. And they probably thought, we're fine, we're safe, we've got these big strong walls. But as soon as Jericho falls, all the other cities start panicking. Very interesting. It's a real corroboration of everything we read in Scripture. But let's pick up verse 15 then. So you read, And it came to pass on the seventh day, they've been marching around a city, city once each day in silence, that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. And so they've gone around once every day, but this day they're going to now go through around actually seven times in one day. Uh, and the, the inhabitants will be looking over the walls thinking, you're mad, why, why are you doing this? This is not going to win an army, win a battle like this. But verse 16, it came to pass at the seventh time that when the priests blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city shall be accursed, even it. Notice this, and all that are therein. To the Lord, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are uh, with her in the house because she hid the messengers that were sent. So this one individual, uh, Rahab, um, who interestingly when you do a study, you see that seemingly she was already wanting to change her life. And she just seems to cry out to God. She gives this opportunity to repent and to seek God. And she does so. And she hides these spies that go in um, first. Verse 18, and you in any ways, sorry, and you in any ways keep yourselves from the accursed thing. Lest you make yourself accursed, when you take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord, and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So it's a very simple rule that Joshua is laying before the people. Gold, silver, and all this stuff, that's going to be given to God, those precious things. There's going to be an offering, as it were, uh, for the sanctuary and so on. But everything else, a curse is placed upon it. And Joshua makes it very clear, don't touch it. Because if you touch it, you're not only going to cause a problem for yourself, but the most important thing at the end of verse 18, it says, make the camp of Israel a curse. In other words, if you take of something, and let me just just bring it up to our own kind of uh, vernacular, the way we would look at this. If you take something of the world that you're not supposed to take, it's going to cause a problem for the whole camp really echoes what we've just looked at already in Corinthians. Let's um, jump to chapter 7 then. And we read, But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. So, in regard to that which shouldn't have been taken of the world, and of course, Jericho, great example of the world. And it says, For Achan, the son of Camry, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Judah. I mean, Judah had already come to the fore as one of the principal tribes of the nation. You'd think they'd know better, they'd learn lessons, but took of the accursed thing. And we read, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And then we're just given that a little bit, and then we're just told of one of the next things that happened. It says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, or Ai, whichever you prefer, uh, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel. I spoke unto them, saying, go up and view the country, and the men went up and viewed Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said unto him, let not, the, let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. So this is a very confident, a small city. They've just defeated Joshua. They're on cloud nine in terms of, you know, this uh, feeling good. And, and, and there's no need to take the whole army. You just take a few. 
As we read verse 4, they went up thither of the people, about 3,000 men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And that wasn't what they were expecting. And the men of Ai smote them, about 36 men. So, interesting. Always these numbers, if you look at that. It's all multiples of six. Interesting, where man is always involved. Uh, for they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shibarim, and smote them in the going down, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Suddenly all their confidence is gone. You see, the danger of having a victory or having a great time, a time of blessing and prosperity, is that you start to think, well, look what we've done. You know, a great example of that with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, when he looks around and he sees everything and how wonderful Babylon was and his heart is lifted up and he look look what I have achieved and as a result of that in Daniel chapter four we read that God then subjected him to seven years going out and eating grass like an animal just being completely humbled. But here the people after this great Jericho victory are suddenly now really fearful. And verse six says and Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord. Well. Praise God for people like Joshua who know where to go. You see, the ark, recognize what the ark represents because what was in the ark was the word of God. It was God's law that had been written on these tablets of stone. Effectively, it's, it's the word of God. And he bows himself. He comes and humbles himself before the face of the ark of the Lord. And notice, until the evening tide, he and the elders of Israel and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would to God that we'd been content to dwell on the other side of Jordan. I mean, there they'd had great victories. They defeated Og, king of Bashan, and all these other great people that are there, these giant tribes on the other side of Jordan. Now they've crossed over. Yes, they've just defeated Jericho, but... This victory area was crushing for them. Oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns their backs before their enemies? As Joshua is now concerned, people are just going to get so discouraged, they're not going to want to fight at all. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it, and shall uh, environ us around and cut off our name from the earth. And what will thou do unto thy great name? So you notice Joshua's heart. He's concerned about God's reputation. He's not just looking out for himself here. He's not, what will people think of me as a leader? No, no, he's thinking about God's name. And the Lord said unto Joshua, <laughs> I love this, get thee up, wherefore thou liest upon thy face. Come on, stand up, come on, put yourself together. And Israel, he says, Israel has sinned. Uh, seemingly, that hadn't occurred to Joshua. You know, whatever reason Joshua had placed upon this, in essence, Joshua was blaming the enemy. The enemy is too powerful, too strong. They've defeated us. Lord, why have you allowed them to defeat us? God spins it around and basically says, no, no, you're looking in the wrong direction. And that's why I said earlier about we need to be careful when we blame the devil for things. Sometimes we need to turn around and look at ourselves. Verse 11 again, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I have commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also. And they have put it even among their own stuff. 
Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except you destroy the accursed thing from among you. What a statement. God says to Joshua, I'm not going to be with you anymore. I'm not going to grant you any more victories until you deal with this problem. Up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourself against tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel, and thou cannot stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord has taken shall come according to the families thereof, and the family which the Lord shall take shall come by the households, and the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. And it shall be that he that is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has wrought folly in Israel. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken, and he brought the family of Judah, and he took the family of the Zahites, and he brought the family of the Zahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken, and he brought the household, his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zariah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Isn't this interesting? Because this has already gone out, and this must have taken a little bit of time because they've gone through a number of tribes. You know, this kind of selection process of dwindling down to the, the, the number of the group. And this individual, Achan, seemingly just waits. He knows the situation. He knows what was going on. He knew that he'd taken this Babylonian garment and he'd hidden it under his tent. And he hears this declaration. He's fully aware of what's happened to Ai and his defeats. And I'm sure that very quickly throughout the camp had spread this understanding that God was saying that somebody has done something they shouldn't have done and it's affected the whole camp. It's brought about this defeat. But rather than stepping forward and saying, you know, sorry, it's me. And I understand in a sense from a human perspective because of what's been pronounced that he's going to be killed. You see the trepidation, but you can't fool God. And he just waits until he's finally singled out. Almost hoping that, or maybe even believing that, that God is not that powerful that he could expose him in front of the congregation. That God wouldn't really do that, would he? Would he? And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua, said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice this, the Lord God of Israel. Notice again, the capitals. He recognizes who God is, and yet has still done this thing. This isn't somebody who's just an ignorant sinner. And thus, and thus have I done. And when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonianish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold and 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Interesting, isn't it? Look, we're told here that it's not just the garment, but the gold. What was supposed to have happened to the garment? 
Well, that was accursed. There just should have been left. What should have happened to the silver and the gold? Well, that should have been given to the Lord. So he's done two things here. He's taken something of the world that should never have taken. But he's also not given to God what he should have given to God. And that's the, 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 the outworking of these things. When we take things of the world that we shouldn't take, when we allow things of the world into our hearts, when we bury them, as it were, under our tents in our hearts, we also default in not then giving to God what is due him. Because God wants to us to worship him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Verse 22, so Joshua sent messages and they ran unto the tent and behold, it was hid in his tent and the silver under it. And they took them out of the midst of the tent and brought them unto Joshua and unto the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zariah, Zariah, sorry, and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses. Notice how many people get caught up in this. And his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why hast thou troubled us? You see, Achor's response to that, probably, if we'd have had opportunity to hear his defense, would have been, well, I really didn't think it was going to matter. You know, the fact that I did this, or I allowed that into my, my life, the fact that I thought those things, or that I looked at those things, or that I buried those emotions in my heart, I didn't think it was going to cause a problem because nobody saw it and it was hidden under my tent. Nobody knew it was there. I'm told the verse, the second part of verse 25. And all Israel stoned him with stones and noticed and burned them, his family get caught up in this as well, with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they rose over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. And then we go on and we find that the Lord then blesses Israel with this victory over Ai. And from that point they go on and have many other victories. And they, they claim the, this land, the promised land um, for the Lord. And it becomes their home. Now, there's a lot we can see in that about the way we approach things, our hearts. And there's a real danger that even within a body of believers, we can allow things into our life, into our hearts. We bury them. And we think it's not going to have an impact. God's not really going to expose us in front of the congregation, is he? God really wouldn't, you know, put us through that kind of humiliation. Well, let's look at the the symptoms again. The, The whole camp had been defeated And God says effectively, I can't bless you when you're in this place. This is just one man. Maybe his family knew a bit about this as well. We we don't know how much they knew or didn't know. But just one man. The whole camp is affected because of it. Do we stop and think about our actions and how it affects each other? Because we're one body. Paul makes it very clear that the things we do really have an impact on each other just think for a, a second Saul and of David if you were to write a list of all the sins of Saul what would you write 
toward the end of his life, certainly you could talk about pride and arrogance and a, a bunch of other stuff. But early on, before God rejected him from being king, there isn't too much. Not the way we tend to look at things. The really big problem was that Saul assumed an office that wasn't his. He sacrificed because Samuel was late turning up in his estimation. And the army were getting a bit scared as they were about to go into battle against the Philistines. So Saul ends up sacrificing. Of course, he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't called to do that. But in God's eyes, that was a really big thing. In fact, there's just a couple of instances you read about in Saul's life where he didn't trust God or he didn't give God the glory. He didn't obey God in fairly simple tasks. What about David? We're in our second column. Make a list of all the sins of David. Lied, stole, murdered, committed adultery. You know, David's list of sins seems much greater, actually, if you look at it, of the things we're told. What's the difference? Well, the difference was the heart. We're told of David that he was a man after God's own heart. It's not about the quantity of sin necessarily. It's about the attitude of heart and mind. And David certainly does sin a number of times. But David is always repentant. He comes to God and he confesses his sin. I mean, you read Psalm 51, it's, it's very emotional as David pours his heart out to God and says, please, Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David was a, a fallen person like you and I, but he had a heart for God. Saul, on the other hand, was of the... <laughs> doesn't really matter, does it? In one sense, you could really argue that, that Saul's sins were less than David's. But it was the attitude, it was the response to them. You know, so I don't want to condemn you this morning if you're struggling with sin. Because... First John tells us that we all struggle with sin. And if you say that you're not struggling with sin, you're lying. So you are struggling with sin because you're a liar. And we all struggle with sin. But it's your attitude toward it. If your attitude is such that when you sin, you are grieved and it hurts you because you know you've hurt God and you've hurt the Holy Spirit who's dwelling in you, well then, the Lord is still working in you. But if your response is, well, you can do something and... Nobody else knows about it. doesn't really matter. God wouldn't really judge, would he? You know, <laughs> things like this have been going on for years. And, you know, and look, you, you fill in the blank. I don't have to list all the sins out for you. You, you know your own heart, the thing you struggle with. You know, and there's all, it could be, you know, it, something emotional. It could be an attitude. It could be actions. It could be something you do, something you look at, something you watch, something... Places you go, people you, you spend time with. All sorts of things, you know, whatever. You, you, you know in your own heart, the Holy Spirit will convict you. I don't need to do that, but. But if your attitude to those things, it, it doesn't matter. Well, then you're in the, the camp of Saul. And that is a problem. Because Psalm 66, verse 18, you can mark it if you want to, but it, say, it simply says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear and I've said this a number of times, it's not because God doesn't want to hear you when you pray, but it's very simply that if you are regarding iniquity, if there's things in your life that you are not prepared to acknowledge and admit is sin, God simply says, effectively, I cannot open the gate of heaven and let you come into my presence 
because there is nothing unholy that can come before the throne of God. Even people like Isaiah, with no particular sin that he was aware of, standing before the throne, is suddenly aware of his own iniquity. Even if we weren't sinning and we're before the throne, we suddenly are aware of our own fallen state. But God says that you cannot, with unconfessed sin, come into his presence. But are you aware of the impacts that this has on a congregation? Because you're also preventing the rest of the congregation from doing the same. Because the Lord looks at us as one body. I just want to read to you something of Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers says, The battle is lost or won in the secret places of the will before God, never first in the external world. The Spirit of God apprehends me, and I am obliged to get alone with God and fight the battle out before him. Until this is done, I lose every time. The battle may take one minute or a year. That will depend upon me, not on God. But it must be wrestled out alone before God, and I must resolutely go through the hell of a renunciation before him. Nothing has any power over the man who has fought out the battle before God and won there. If I say, I will wait till I get into the circumstances and then put God to the test, I shall find that I cannot. I must get the thing settled between myself and God in the secret places of my soul where no stranger intermeddles, and then I can go forth with the certainty that the battle is won. Lose it there, and calamity and disaster and upset are as sure as God's decree. The reason the battle is not won is because I try to win it in the external world first. Get alone with God, fight it out before him. Settle the matter there once and for all. In dealing with other people, the line to take is to push them to initiative of will. That is the way abandonment begins. Every now and again, not often, but sometimes, God brings us to a point of climax. That is the great divide in the life. From the point, from that point, we either go towards a more and more dilutory and useless type of Christian life, or we become more and more ablaze for the God, for, for, ablaze for the glory of God, my utmost for His highest. You see, a lot of us put a, a lot, great deal of effort into the external side of things, the external battle. We, we learn how to present ourselves to other Christians, particularly. You know, and we can look great on the surface, that we can seem like things are really going well with us. But as Oswald Air is highlighting, the real battle is when we're alone with God, when nobody else sees what's going on. That's the real test. And we have some great example in Scripture. Joseph, of course, what a great example. Nobody would have needed to know anything about that situation with him and Potiphar's wife. She would have kept it quiet. But Joseph knew that God knew. And Joseph knew that he couldn't sin against God. What about Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to give them their corrupted Babylonian names. Those three godly young men taken off to the University of Babylon. Nobody knew what they were doing. Nobody really cared. They're given all these delicacies and food to eat and whatever else they wanted. 
but they determined not to be defiled. They suddenly stood out like a sore thumb because they weren't blending in. They said could have easily blended in and nobody would have cared. But they knew that God cared. Just turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we close. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 26. We read there, Paul says, and whether one member, speaking of a body, one part of a body, suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or where one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. You know, the challenge this morning, and I'm not trying to point any fingers, I'm just simply saying that if you are allowing things in your life that are not godly, I want you to be fully aware of the impact that has on a body of believers. And I'm not saying that somebody here has got some Babylonian garments and some coins under their tent. Some things buried in your heart. And that's why we've got a number of issues within the fellowship. But it could be. And it's a good message. It's a good lesson to learn. To always be mindful of our need to consider each other. You see, one of my favorite verses, you know, I've loads of times quoted this from Galatians 6 verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, if you're truly going to bear one another's burdens, it's not just being around in a practical sense to help with the problem. It comes back to something that Adrian said right at the start of the meeting today. And that is we need to be praying. You know, it's not even just enough not to be in sin, but we need to use all of our effort, energy, and time to be praying for each other so that none of us end up in a position such as the type we've been talking about this morning. We need to stop sinning and intercede, quite simply. Examine yourself, as Paul urges us to. And look, if you're in a a situation that you're struggling with sin, but you hate it, well, praise God. Because God says there is no temptation that is greater than you can bear. And God will always make a way of escape. You know, if you are struggling with sin, I'm not asking you to tell me. I don't really want to know. I've got enough of my own problems. But if you want to come and talk to me, or come and talk to the elders, and we'll pray. I don't, I don't I'm not really even bother about details. You know, we don't get into confessionals and that kind of stuff. Of course, it's not biblical. But we are in James uh, to confess our faults, not our sins, but our faults to each other. So if you're struggling and you want specific prayer, it doesn't have to go out to everybody in the congregation necessarily. If you'd like it to, we can. And look, who amongst us is in a position to say that we're not struggling in some area of our life? But if there is something specific, well then let's, please, for God's sake and for the congregation's sake, for the glory of God, let's pray this thing through and deal with it. If there is nothing, well then we just keep praying for each other. But always be be mindful that your actions can have a big impact. So again, let me say, I'm not trying to point the finger this morning, but it is a warning we see in Scripture just to be mindful, to be careful, to care for each other.
by the way that we live our own lives. In 3 John, verse 2, John says there that he wants us to prosper and be in health even as our souls prosper. There's nothing wrong with praying that God will give us good health. So let's keep doing that for those that are suffering physically. Most importantly, let's be praying for the spiritual. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for this reminder today that we are part of a body. And Lord, we thank you for that because we realize how much we need each other. Father, just as a body needs all its parts, Lord, we need each other. And we need each other, Father, to support and sustain and strengthen each other, to encourage each other. But Father, I do pray this morning, if there is any one of us, any unconfessed sin that we are just allowed to stay there, hoping that no one will find out. Oh Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit this morning will do what your word says he would do and bring conviction of sin. Lord, may we not rest until those garments and those things that are hidden deep down are rooted out. And then, Lord, together, may we love you and love each other. May we serve each other by praying for each other, by uplifting each other, by, Lord, standing in the gap and praying for each other. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, next week we'll carry on on this kind of same kind of theme and it will bring kind of an exhortation, encouragement um, to the body. So there's some things we shouldn't do. Next week we'll look at some things we should do uh, in a positive sense. May God bless you. Let's have some fellowship together over teas and coffees.